Uh, Lord, we do thank you for uh, this warm building, especially after this week. We thank you for um, the grace you pour out on this church, and I ask that you will continue to do that, and uh, especially now as I begin to preach, and I pray that people will, we will all be able to hear your word and receive it, and to trust you and to love you and your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So when, um, when people are looking for a new church, and they come to me and say, what should I be looking for? I'll, I'll, I'll ask them kind of a counter question. What are you looking for in a church? What do, you, what do you want in a church? And sometimes you will say, well, I want a, I want a good community where people are close and care for one another. Sometimes people will say, I, I want a, a good preaching, substantive, solid preaching. Uh, other times they'll say, I just want to be somewhere where I can use the gifts that God's given me so I, I, I can serve in, in some way. Or I, I want a, a place with a really good Sunday school uh, program for my kids. Those are all fine things. In, in, in 20 years that I've been a pastor, I've, I've never heard anyone say, though, you know, I just want to find a church where everyone is terrified, where everyone is super afraid and trembling all the time. I've never heard someone say that. No one wants that. But that's, that's Luke's description of the very first church. If you look back up at verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And you might ask, if you weren't here last Sunday, well, what, are, what are these things? What's the thing causing, causing the fear? And, and the thing causing the fear is that God, the Holy Spirit, struck down a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Struck down is very you know, kind of nice biblical language. He killed them. Because they lied to Peter. If you want the whole story, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But they lied to Peter, and so God killed them. Uh, God killing people, that's also another thing that people don't usually want in the church. They don't, it's not on the top of the list there of things they want to find. But God obviously thinks about these things differently than, than we do. And one critical, crucial take-home lesson from uh, the event of God killing Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira is that the church belongs to the Lord. It belongs to God. And so in lying to the church, you lie to God. If you try to hurt the church in some way, you're, you're, you're attacking Christ. It's his body. Uh, Jesus says something very similar to this. We'll see it when we get to chapter 9 of Acts. He says something very similar to, to, to Saul of Tarsus. He says, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? And if you read up to that point, you might scratch your head a little bit because Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus was in heaven. Uh, he was just going after the church. And in our day, going after the church is considered fair game because the church, after all, is full of people who don't practice what they preach, a bunch of hypocrites, and full of angry people and people who are selfish and, and judgmental people and people who are uh, even addicted to things and all kinds of people who are not like Jesus in any way. And that's true. The church is like that. 
And it always has been true about the church. It's always, even, even back in the first century, the church in Acts was like that. And so people who see the, the hypocrisy of the church, I guess, think, well, Jesus must hate his church as much as we do. But he doesn't. He loves his church. He loves her. And if you or anyone else attacks her or lies to her or tries in any way to destroy her, uh, you're doing all of that or trying to do all of that to him. So, so long as you're willing to confess, and I hope you all are, as long as you're willing to confess uh, that you don't practice what you preach, none of us do, or that maybe if you're judgmental, you're willing to confess that, or uh, angry all the time without cause, or selfish, or addicted to something that you shouldn't be, uh, and, the, and you're willing to confess, yeah, I'm not like Jesus, then you belong right here in the church. Because Jesus came to save sinners and, and to forgive them. And the primary place that he does that is the church. Under the old covenant, all of that happened at the temple. Uh, the Lord's spirit rested in the temple. Uh, Jesus' blood was applied to the Israelites in the old covenant, under the old covenant, through those old sacrifices there in the temple. But now the Lord resides in his church. And he's here to heal and to purify and to forgive you when you come to him in, in faith. He has, a, he has a staff to lead you and, and guide you. But he also has a rod to defend you and to drive out those who come to hurt you. It was very necessary in those first days of the church and now for people to know that when the Lord sees that it's time to do so, he will bear his arm and act. And he did that with Ananias and Sapphira. And fear, in, in such times, fear is a good and proper response. It's good the church felt the weight of what had happened and that people outside the church saw and felt the weight of what had happened. Now, setting aside that miraculous Killing, I guess, if you want to call it, miraculous death. Uh, so far, we've seen two major miracles in Acts. We saw the, the speaking of tongues, the languages that was given to the church in the, in the day of Pentecost. And, and we saw Peter's healing of the lame beggar at the temple gate. But if you see down, if you look at verse 12, Luke tells us there that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. That's, that's in the public, among the, among the people of Jerusalem, not just in the church by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, it's, it's good. I'm glad that Luke uses that word signs along with wonders. Because the wonders, the, the miracles, are not just intended to cause astonishment and, and awe. Uh, that's what magic shows are for. Let's like, just pretend for a second that uh, the magic show that you go see in some, in some theater is real and, and the magician uh, really does, out of nothing or nowhere, pull a rabbit out of his hat or, or saw a lady in two and, she, and she's really not sawed in two. Uh, what's the purpose of that? What is, what, 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 what's that supposed to do? You're supposed to say, oh, wow, the amazing Gerald or whatever the magician's name is. That's all you're supposed to do. That's all there is to it. But these miracles say something. 
Every time a blind person is made to see or a deaf person is made to hear or a sick person is healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, God bears witness to the people of Jerusalem that Jesus, whom they cried out for his death, that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead, that he's exercising power and dominion over all things. That he is, in fact, the long-promised Messiah who brings the long-promised new covenant to, uh, to complete and fulfill the old. The miracles tell the people of Jerusalem that, that when, when you cried out for Jesus to be crucified and you thought he was a fraud, and when, when, when you saw them nail him to the tree and you thought he was... He was cursed by God. Well, okay, in that last one, you're right. He was cursed by God. But that was precisely what God's hand and his plan predestined to take place. So that the Christ, who is your Messiah, might take the curse away from you and bear it himself. And now he lives and reigns and gives life to everybody who comes comes to him. Every single miracle signifies that truth. That's why it's actually so interesting that the apostles perform these signs at Solomon's portico. So let's just for a minute pretend that you're a Jewish man. Even if you're a woman, just for the sake of the, the, the game here, pretend you're a Jewish, Jewish man in the, in the first century, and you wake up one morning and you say, oh my goodness, I have sinned in some terrible way. I need to be forgiven. So you go and you buy a lamb or a or a goat, or whatever, whatever it might be, and you head up to the temple, and you pass through the gate, and you find yourself in a wide open courtyard that's surrounded by a covered porch. That's Solomon's portico, but you'd have to keep going. You have to keep, keep walking past Solomon's portico, and you'd pass through another gateway into what's called the women's court. And this is why you have to pretend to be a man, because if you're a woman, you'd have to stop there. But the, the men can go on past another gate into the main temple court. And there, what you'd see is an altar called the altar of sacrifice. And you would give your goat or your lamb or whatever it is to the priest, and the priest would kill it, and he would spray the blood on the side of the altar, and then he would probably burn the carcass of the animal on top of the altar that has fire on it. Now, if you're that man... And you think the old covenant is still in force. That, right there at that altar of sacrifice, that is where you would expect to see the signs and wonders. At the altar. That's where the blood of the sacrifices satisfies God's wrath. That's where forgiveness is, is, is given. That's where God meets with his people through his mediators, the priests. If God wants to publicly say, here I am, through signs and wonders, you'd expect to see the signs and wonders at the altar of sacrifice. But it's not happening there. He's doing it outside. He's doing it under, under Solomon's portico, which is part of the temple complex, but not really even technically part of the temple. And he's doing it by the hands of the apostles of Jesus of Nazareth. And why is that? 
Well, that's because the church has become his temple. The apostles, his ministers of his new covenant. And Jesus is the great high priest who's provided the one and only sacrifice and offering and for the satisfaction of sins for the whole world. The veil that separated sinners from their holy God has been torn in two from top to bottom. And the temple is now obsolete. That's what these signs communicate. So if you're a Jew, and, and I would say, and you've sinned a lot, don't, don't go to the altar. Stop there at Solomon's portico and see the signs and, and hear about Jesus and his cross and believe. But, but here's where maybe the fear comes in. You'll see the fear in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And here we have to ask a question, and it may seem like we're getting into the weeds here, but you've got to follow me through, so just, just listen carefully. Uh, we have to ask the question, who are the rest? Is it the church? Is the church the rest? So, so Luke could be saying, well, Luke has already told us that the church has been afraid because of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. So maybe what he's saying here is that the apostles are by themselves under the, under, in Solomon's portico, and the church doesn't dare join them. But the people, not the church, the, the people outside the church, hold the apostles in high regard, even though they don't have a huge crowd of the church around them. Maybe that's what Luke's saying. And that's a legitimate way to read this. I think you, if you want to come away with that interpretation of it, be my guest. But I would disagree with you. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think the rest is the church. I think Luke means something like this. Once word got out that people get killed in the church, none of the rest of the people outside the church dared join the church, which was gathering together with the apostles at Solomon's portico. But even though the people didn't dare join them, they still held them in high respect, high High regard. Now, I think that's what's going on here because uh, back up in chapter 4, verses 29 through 30, you'll notice there the whole church prays for two things. Uh, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, that's one, while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's two. And here in chapter 5, Luke is showing us that God has answered that prayer in the affirmative. The, 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 see, Luke's saying, God is continuing to grant signs and wonders through the name of Jesus by the hands of the apostles. But if, in fact, the church is too afraid to join them, then the boldness the church prayed for hasn't been granted. They're not there with the apostles sharing the gospel. It's only been granted maybe for the 12, but not for the church. And again, I think it's a possible reading. I'm not saying that's necessarily surely wrong, but I do think the next verse, verse 14, makes it more difficult. And more than ever, we read, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, so the rest are afraid to join the apostles. They don't dare join the apostles. And yet, 
believers, the believers are being added to the Lord. Interesting contrast. There's, there's the rest over here that won't go and that the believers will. Uh, notice the, the passive language here. Uh, they're not, the, the believers are not adding themselves to the Lord. They're, uh, they're not deciding to meet God halfway. They're being at it. God takes people who don't believe and he turns their hearts miraculously toward his son and then as a consequence of that, uh, they believe. I, I, think, I think that's the key contrast that Luke is, is getting at here. The difference between those who believe and those who, who, who don't. I think this is kind of the scenario. Word circulates throughout Jerusalem that a husband and a wife who were followers of Jesus, who are members of the church, lied to Peter and they immediately dropped dead. That's divine discipline. And if you're just hanging about the edges of the church, you're probably not going to join. If, if you're in the church because it's the latest thing, but that's as far as it goes, you're probably not going to stay. When people start getting arrested and, and dropping dead, you're, you're not going to you're not going to hang around. Who, who stays in a church like that? Who joins a, a church like that? I, I think it's only those who know and believe that Jesus alone has the words of life. Where, where else would we go? Everyone else is going to keep their distance. So the apostles and the church gather at Solomon's portico and God adds a multitude of, of new believers, but the, but the rest of the people don't dare join them because God hasn't changed the rest of their hearts. Now, um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that God still kills people in the church. He still, he still does do things like what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, he does that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when people come to his table in defiance, in, in a rebellious, stubborn, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, I don't care what God says kind of attitude, then God sometimes makes people sick or people actually die, says Paul. So don't do that. But to keep that from happening, God has, has authorized his church to exercise discipline. So... So the people won't be falling over and dying. So let's say your friend, uh, you have a friend uh, who, who leaves her husband for another man. And so you go to her and you say, hey, you're, you claim to be a Christian. You need to, you need to repent and come back to your husband. But she says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in love. I'm deeply, deeply in love with this person, and, and I know that Jesus wants me to be happy, so I'm going to keep doing this. And so you take two others with you, like Jesus says to do. You take two others with you, and you go to her, and she still uh, won't, won't listen. And so then you tell the church, and here at Good Shepherd, that would be the vestry and the, me and ultimately the bishop. 
uh, you tell the church, and we go to her and we say, look, here's what Jesus says about this. He, he didn't tell you to leave your husband and go to this other person. Here's what Jesus says about this. It's a sin. You're, you're, you're destroying yourself and your husband and, and your kids, and, and you're bearing bad witness for the church, and you're telling a lie about Jesus. And after all that, she still says, no, I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to keep doing. I don't care what you or your Bible says. Well, at that point, Jesus says, we would need to cut her off from the table. Not because we don't love her, or because Jesus doesn't love her, because he does love her. He doesn't want her to die and get hurt, and he wants her to repent and believe and be forgiven. Now, we've had to do that kind of thing a few times uh, in the last 20 years for different reasons than this. I'm just going to use this as an example. And it's always, always painful. And the result is usually that people leave. Not the people who are being disciplined, but just other people who see it. People who are visiting on a Sunday like that, when we have to announce something like that, don't come back. Uh, Non-believers who may hear about it outside the the walls of the church say, what a bunch of judgmental, narrow-minded jerks. I'll never go to that church. And that's actually why some churches won't, won't do what Jesus says to do in those cases. But see, it's, it is Jesus who commands that we do it. He's not worried. He's not worried about discipline hurting the growth of his church. And there's a reason for that. Because Jesus does not make believers out of unbelievers by appealing to their ideas about how he should do things. The human heart is, is hostile, hostile to him. He's got to pierce it. He's got to put the heart of flesh to death by his word and then raise up new men and new women from the dead. Discipline doesn't stop him from doing that. So here, you've got a city full of people afraid to join the church wherein people die and others are being arrested and persecuted. And yet Jesus breaks through the bulwark of a thousand hostile hearts and the multitudes still come in. They're still being joined to the church. Now, uh, Luke adds more detail about the signs and the wonders. We can see this in verses 15 and 16. So they they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now this might, if you've read the Gospels, this might sound very familiar, because this is very much like Jesus' first year of ministry in Capernaum. Word gets out that he heals lots of people, and people from the surrounding villages of Capernaum bring their sick and their dying and their possessed relatives and friends, and Jesus heals them all. That's what's happening here. Uh, I, hope you, I hope you see the, the desperation on the part of these people. It's a, it's a kind of desperation you know well if you've watched someone you love very much suffer and you can't do anything. You've Watch them die, maybe. It's the kind of desperation if, if 
You know somebody who is enduring pain that just won't go away. Uh, Peter, we know, goes to the temple daily for morning prayer and, and evening prayer, and maybe he follows the same, same path, and maybe, maybe it's along that same path that people lay there, they're sick and they're dying, hoping Peter's shadow might fall on them. Uh, the word, therefore, fall on is usually translated overshadow. And Luke, in particular, uses this word often when he is trying to communicate that God has drawn near. The Spirit overshadowed Mary, and she conceived. That the cloud, we read about this today, but it's Matthew's gospel, but it's the same thing as in Luke. The cloud overshadowed Jesus at his transfiguration, and the Father spoke, spoke out of the cloud. Now, Peter is not God, don't get me wrong, but and he's not Jesus. But Jesus is speaking through Peter and he's working through Peter powerfully. And so these people are drawn to Jesus through what he's doing. And, you know, looking at if we can just even put our sick in the, in the way of his shadow. Now, some people say that's, that's kind of ridiculous. That, what does Peter have a, 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 the magic shadow that just heals people some kind of... It seems like superstitious, doesn't it? Well, maybe it is. But there's a, there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She tried all the medicines. She tried all the physicians. None of it worked. Then Jesus came to her town, and, and she, she saw him in a distance. He was, he was pressed by a large crowd, and, and, and she, she's been bleeding. She's unclean. She's not supposed to go near anybody, but she says to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I know I'll be made well. I know I'll be cured. And so she, she makes her way forward, and she, she pushes through people around him, apparently on her knees, because she reaches out and touches just the, the bottom hem of his, of, his, of his robe. And when she does that, immediately the blood stops. The bleeding stops. And, and Jesus looks at her and he says, daughter, after she comes forward, and he looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I think that's the sort of thing happening here. People are desperate for a cure. And, and Jesus, we're told, heals all of them or through Peter. He heals the sick and dying from the surrounding villages, and he heals the ones Peter's shadow overshadows. Sometimes, still today, uh, Jesus miraculously heals the sick and dying. Sometimes he doesn't. But these wonders that we're reading about, these Healings and deliverances are signs for you too. Are, are, are you desperate for the cure? Are you desperate for true health? For, for life that even death cannot injure or sin destroy? Well, you, you go to him and you take hold of him and you trust him and he will make, make you well. Everyone who comes to him, everyone. He heals them all, every single one. Now, you might remember 
that the high priest commanded Peter and John not to preach in the name of Jesus. He was hoping to shut the whole thing down, to, get, to stop the growth of the church. Obviously, that didn't work because multitudes are streaming in. So we read in verse 17 and 18, the high priest rose up and with all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Now, the Sadducees are rivals to the Pharisees. We've talked about them before. They're the minority on the Sanhedrin, but they are a very powerful minority. The most powerful priests and the most powerful Levites, they're all Sadducees. And like we said last time we talked about them, they do not believe in the resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection. They don't believe in any resurrection at all, ever. And they don't believe that you live on after death. They believe you die, and that's, that's just it. This life is all there is, so you better make the best of it. And so they do. They make the best of it. They cozy up to the Romans, and the Romans secure their privilege and wealth, uh, which their wealth, anyway, comes mainly from the temple coin exchange and the animal market that's run in the, in the temple. Now, the Sadducees, they're powerful, they're wealthy, but, but they are not popular. They've never been well-liked among the people. Josephus and others tell us that uh, the Sadducees held the, the ordinary people in contempt. They looked down on the regular, regular people. Uh, they even looked down on the Pharisees. They thought they were less intelligent, their theology less sophisticated than, uh, than, their, than their own. Um, they didn't care about being liked or popular. They really did care about being having superior theology and superior scholarship and superior reasoning, but they didn't, they didn't care about, about being liked. So when you read that the Sadducees rose up filled with jealousy, or, or you could say it's zeal, it's, it's not because they really want the people to love them and the people don't love them. They, they, don't, they don't care about the, about the people loving them. And the people never did love them. No, it's... It, if you're a Sadducee, just put yourself in a Sadducee's shoes for a minute. If you're a Sadducee and a bunch of filthy Galileans, no training, no education, no theological acumen, stand in the temple courts that you oversee, you're in charge of those places, and miraculously make blind people see, deaf people hear, mute people talk, and they're doing it publicly in a way that you cannot deny. It's indisputable what they're doing. Everyone sees it. And they're doing it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who everyone saw die on a cross. You can't just condescend that away. You can't dismiss that with a wave of your hands. Your, your, your grand theological idea that there's no resurrection is beginning to look very silly. You're starting to look ridiculous. I, I think that's the source of the zeal here or the jealousy or whatever it is. They, they are zealous for their pride. And I think it's interesting. I think clearly, clearly God loves the Sadducees so much. He loves them so much that he's publicly stripping away the foundation for their conceit that's consumed them and blinded them. 
When, and this is a good point for you to take up. When, when God makes it so blindingly obvious that you've been terribly wrong, he's loving you at that moment. He, he wants you to confess that you're wrong so that his truth can set you free. Now, the Sadducees, sadly, uh, don't, don't do that. Instead, they, they rise up and they arrest all 12 apostles and they put them in prison. And uh, now, uh, now they're, they're shut up. And, and it, but I don't think it's just about shutting them up. I think there's, this is about power. Because you, you guys out there, you apostles out there doing your signs and wonders, well, watch this. We can put you in jail and stop the whole thing whenever we want. That's power. But then, that kind of makes verse 19 a little funny, doesn't it? But during the night, uh, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, uh, God could have done this any way, any other way. That later in, in Acts, uh, he will free Paul from a jail in Philippi by just causing an earthquake and the doors, uh, doors fly open. He could have freed them any way he wanted to. He could have just said the word. But he sends an angel to do it. And we can't say definitively why he does that. But it is more personal this way, isn't it? Sending someone from heaven that the, who the apostles can see, an angel, God's personal messenger, to personally escort them out of jail, past the guards. Uh, uh, so when people ask them, how'd you get out? The, the 12 men who they've all seen heal lots of people can say, well, God, God, God sent his angel to unlock the doors and, and lead us out. That's important. See, an earthquake might be explained away as some just coincidence or some natural occurrence, but, but for anyone with ears to hear, the angel makes it indisputable that God has personally overruled the Sadducees. They put him in jail. God freed them over. He went over their, God's over their heads. It, this makes it very clear that the Sadducees are opposing God himself. And God isn't having it. He can have, God's going to have his way. And the angel said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life, of this life. Now, if I'm an apostle, I'm not sure I'd want to hear this. Uh, back when we... Some of you were here, I remember this, back when we lost our building. Uh, it was a pretty scary time, pretty harrowing. We didn't know what was going to happen. And the, whole, the whole church, however, the whole church said, we are willing to lose everything for Jesus and for the gospel. And it turned out that for about a week, we did lose everything. We lost our building, we lost, Ann and I and the kids lost our home, and we lost all of the assets that we had in, in the bank. All that was gone. We had a $600,000 endowment that was gone. Um, but then, just as suddenly, God poured all this into our laps. The, the sanctuary we're sitting in, which is thankfully warm this morning. And the parking lot outside and the school over there. And all the, all the things that we're enjoying right now, God just poured out in a matter of, in a, matter of a week. God didn't send an angel, but he definitely led us out of trouble. But if today God were to say, okay, now you get to do the whole thing again. 
I'm putting you in another situation where you're going to lose everything for my sake. But with no promise that you'll get it back. Now, I, I hope and I pray that, that we would trust God and, and lose everything just like we did the first time. But I'll be honest with you, I do not want to be tested like that again. I'd, I'd rather he not do that. And, and so the reason I'm bringing all this up is that if I'm one of the apostles and, and the angel comes down from heaven and he opens a prison door and he lets me outside and here all 12 of us are, oh, look at this, this is so wonderful. I am hoping and praying that the next words out of the angel's mouth are, pack your bags, get out of town, go home to Galilee where you'll be safe. I wouldn't want him to say, go back to the temple. That's the seat of the Sadducean power. And, and when you get to the temple, uh, uh, do the very thing that got you in trouble in the first place. Speak to the people. The words of this life, that is, speak to the people, the words about Jesus who is life and who is the source of life and the substance of life and the, and the beauty of life, who, who, is, who is life from everlasting to everlasting. Tell them about Jesus and his death for their sins and his resurrection and call them to repent and, and be forgiven. And tell them this life is for everyone who repents and trusts in Jesus. But, but the angel, you'll notice, does not say, don't worry. You won't be killed. Don't worry, you're not going to be stoned or beaten. Don't worry, God's going to take care of you. God will take care of them, but there's no promise about how he's going to do it. Now, I don't know, we don't know uh, if what any of the apostles were thinking. Some of them may have been filled with zeal and eager to preach, but maybe others, maybe others were dreading the whole thing. Either way, whatever they're feeling, they act boldly, even if they felt fear. They all set their lives and their possession, their liberty, in Christ's hands. And when they heard this word from the angel, verse 21, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I don't, I don't know what the future holds for, for Good Shepherd. Uh, as you know, things are getting worse and worse for the church. And I don't mean just us. I mean the church, the Christian church. What Jesus teaches us to believe and to speak is considered ignorant and narrow and wicked, evil. But I pray, as long as, as you and I have breath, that we will not stop speaking about this life, even when we're afraid to do it. Because that's how God casts down his enemies and it's how he raises them up again and makes them his friends. Now, the high priest, maybe he's just sitting down for his morning breakfast. He's got his coffee and his eggs and not his bacon because they don't eat bacon, but he's got his coffee and his eggs and he's, he's got his toast and he's thinking, what a great day. I just put these guys in jail and I'm going to go down to the Sanhedrin and we're going to put an end to this Christianity thing uh, today once and for all. Well, he's in for a big surprise, but that will have to wait until next week. Let's, let's pray and close down. 
Father, uh, we thank you for um, this time we've had together in your word. We ask you to help us to take, uh, to take the, the, the wonderful gift that you have given us of, of this life and to take it outside these walls and to share it with as many people as we can boldly, um, even if we're afraid. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to uh, hold you in both love and fear, recognizing that you're a holy God, um, but that you're also a God who loves us and has sent his son to die for us. Um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.